In today's episode, we will be revisiting two of our friends from episode 10. That would be the winter annual oil seed crops, Pennycress and Camelina. And we'll also be introducing a third player to that game. And let me tell you, it is a tricky one. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Welcome to Hooked on Science, a podcast where we learn about cool research that you should know about. I'm your host, Julia Cubans, and today I'm joined by Cody Herning, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics at the University of Minnesota. Cody, thank you for chatting with me today. Thanks, Julia. It's great chatting with you. So have you always been interested in agriculture or research or both, or did that really just come about as you finished up your bachelor's degree? Yeah, it came about in undergrad. So going back a little bit, my grandfather, who a lot had a large influence on my life, was a biologist. Um, we often talked about the natural world plants. He was a big a plant grower along with my grandma. So they they very, really loved plants, flowers. We took walks in the north woods of Wisconsin. So that's really how I got to fall in love with more of the natural surroundings, nature, uh, the outdoors, biology. And then when I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I started with more of a general biology degree. One of our introductory biology courses that was required had a plant biology section. And uh, I fell in love with plant biology then and changed my major to agronomy, graduated with that at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then came to the University of Minnesota and wanted to continue to study plants and really my love developed from there. So Cody, I'm going to guess that oilseed researcher was not what you said you were going to be when you grew up. How did you first learn about Pennycress? I first learned about Pennycress when I was introduced to the Forever Green Initiative. After I came off of my bachelor's, I finished at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I wanted to continue my education. And so I came to the University of Minnesota. That's where I met Don Wise, who is now my advisor. At the time, he was leading this new and innovative program. This is about five years ago now called the Forever Green Initiative. And within that program, you know, there's about 13, 14, I'm, I'm not sure the exact number now, but different crops that are being developed, both perennial and winter annual crops that are being developed for the Minnesota landscape. And pennycress and camelina, the two oil seeds that we'll be talking about today, are a part of that program. And I really, you know, fell in love with the the plants and the mission of the program and the connection to rural Minnesota. And yeah, that's, I guess the rest is history. And I got involved in the research that in that way. Nice. So let's talk a little bit more about Pennycress and Camelina. So what are, what are Pennycress and Camelina? Yeah, well, they're oilseed crops and they're oilseed cover crops. They're winter annuals. The winter annuals are planted in the fall. They overwinter underneath the snow cover, and then immediately upon snow melt in spring, they start to bolt to maturity. And then they have a harvestable oilseed product in seed heads that is harvested in June. But basically they're oilseed crops that can function as cover crops, but also have that profitability component. Okay, so what does it mean to be an oilseed crop, just for clarification? Oh, okay, yes. Oilseed crops are crops in which those seeds are then crushed or processed for oil. So oil is extracted. Soybean is an oilseed crop, canola. Okay, cool. So you also mentioned that 
they have some form of economic profitability, what can you use that oil for? How can you make money off of it? Yeah, so there's a variety of mechanisms. These markets are really still developing, but Honeycrest and Camelina have a variety of different uses in which they can be, again, harvested, crushed, processed, and then refined or, or whatever the processing is into end-use products. They can range from edible oils. Camelina, for example, it's high in omega-3 fatty acids, so it, it's a, maybe a good cooking oil and has been used in cooking. Pennycress has a good oil profile for fuels and, and some more bioproduct based components. So the oils can be used for aviation fuel, biofuels, bioproducts. And I know you've talked to Catherine Frells on a previous podcast, and she probably mentioned, but they are working on trying to get that into the food marketplace as well. So Cody, it sounds like Pennycrest and Camelina can be a really good fit for Minnesota, considering that they're winter annuals as opposed to summer annuals like corn and soybean. And they also have this economic benefit that you're talking about, but how exactly does Pennycress and Camelina, these winter oil seeds, fit into the landscape? Yeah, so on the ground, you know, this fits well into a corn and soybean system. What we have been doing is planting Pennycress or Camelina after corn, so corn in year one, as corn is being harvested or after corn harvest and planting the seeds in the fall. And then in year two, the pennycress or the camelina overwinters, we harvest the oil seeds in the spring. And then we either do one of two things. It's either we relay crop soybean in, which means that we crop soybean in prior to the oil seed harvest, or we double crop soybean, which means that we harvest the oil seed and then plant a short season soybean directly after the oil seed harvest. So those are two methods. And overall, that system, so in those two years, you have now have three crops, providing some of those ecosystem benefits, but also providing a greater economic return. Compared to just soybeans, we've been able to increase the overall oilseed yields by including the pennycress or camelina by 20 to 50% overall. So it can be a very valuable crop in that system. Sure. So there must be some risks incurred in adding a third crop to a, a traditionally two-year rotation. Yeah, so the risks are in the fall, getting the oil seeds established prior to the hard freeze. The winter oil seeds are pretty good at winter survivability as long as they get to about the two-leaf stage. We've been able to stretch that pretty deep into the fall and still get good spring growth. So the fall is not as large of an issue. The issue more comes in the spring with the competition with the soybean growing season. And like I said, we have a, a variety of different ways to manage that by relay cropping or double cropping, but you are reducing the amount of light availability that the soybean has over, over the growing season. So timing is one of the biggest risks. Another risk, of course, is adding a new crop into the system would be pests. And that's something that I work on and I think we'll go into a little more is Adding a new crop, three crops into a, a normal two crop rotation is of course going to bring in that risk for potential pathogens or other pests. Sure. So let's, I guess, jump right into that. You work with a pest called the soybean cyst nematode, which seems like it would be a pest to soybean since it's right in the name. But first off, what is a nematode before we get into the rest of that, that name? Sure. So it's a microscopic roundworm. Um, it's 
in the animal kingdom. And the one we're specifically looking at is a plant parasitic nematode, but there's a variety of different nematodes. Some are human pathogens, some they eat fungal spores, some eat bacteria. So there's a variety of different classes of nematodes. The one that we're concerned about here is a plant parasitic nematode. And that's really what we worry about in the plant communities. Soybean cyst nematode, or SCN, is the number one pathogen in the United States in soybean. And so it's actively managed in soybean, mostly through resistant cultivars. But what it does, it's soil-borne, so it's in the soil, and it attacks the roots and basically uses, uses plant nutrient material to complete its life cycle. So it's actually taking nutrients from the plant. And if these pathogen loads get high enough, then it becomes very problematic as it results in yield loss for the plant. Okay, so walk me through the process of the nematode going from the soil to the penny crust to the soybean. Why is that a concern? Yeah, I'll start with a few years ago, early 2000s, there was a variety of weed surveys. This is back when we used to call penny crust a weed. Now it's a crop, of course. <laughs> but... There's a variety of weed surveys that showed that pennycress could be an alternative host to soybean cyst nematode. And of course, if we're trying to put that into a corn and soybean rotation, that could be, there could be a potential downside to that. What makes a certain plant a good host for a nematode and specifically this soybean cyst nematode? Yeah, so it actually invades um, the roots of living plant tissue. And it's a sedentary endoparasite, which means that it'll actually uh, embed itself and create a feeding site within the tissue. So only the plants that are compatible with this host will see infection. So there's a variety of non-hosts. For example, corn is a non-host to soybean cyst nematode. And there's a variety of those species. But soybean, of course, is its main host. And there's a variety of interactions between the pathogen or the nematode and the roots that make this, this feeding site able to form. So only some species of plants are able to form a viable feeding site for this nematode. So yeah, it is selective by species. Pennycrest just happens to be another one of the species in which this interaction between the pathogen and the root can form and they can complete a life cycle on the root. Okay, so what is the economic impact of this on soybean? Yeah, so the numbers for soybean cyst nematode as a pathogen in soybean are estimated to be just over a billion dollars annually in yield loss. So it is a large loss. It's, again, the number one pathogen. It's very detrimental. And so farmers actively manage them in the soybean crops. What are some of the ways that farmers can manage this? Yeah, so first looking specifically at soybean, it's managed largely with resistance. There has been pretty stable resistance from a source called PI88788. Okay. Yes, a, a long acronym. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but that that is the resistance source for soybean cyst nematode that's in about 95% of all uh, varieties, commercial varieties in the United States right now. There is some breakdown of that and as what happens with many pest populations there's intense selection pressure when you're using the same type of resistance over and over again year after year or decade after decade and so selection pressure has started to to evolve and that has started to reduce the efficiency of these resistance genes in soy okay 
Great. Well, I think we have some good background information to give us context for our research discussion. Before we continue, let's take a quick break. Hi, everyone. Happy August and happy Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Hooked on Science. It is episode 13. And also, August marks six months of putting out the podcast. I put the first one out on February 5th. So we are just over six months in, six months into this experiment, and that's just so exciting. I've had such a fun time doing this podcast and learning the ropes and figuring out how to ask questions and listen better, <laughs> which is an important skill I think we can all probably learn. And it's also really exciting because around this time last year was when I was just thinking about how I wanted to proceed with my PhD and what I really wanted to pursue. And a science communication project was really what I was passionate about. And eventually it formed into doing a podcast. I was met with some incredulous responses when I first told people that I would be pursuing a podcast and producing a podcast during my PhD. But I'm happy to say that people have been supportive, and I have a very supportive advisor and committee, and they said, you can do a podcast. That sounds great. We all need to learn how to talk about our research better, but you need to find some people who know how to produce a podcast and also do research surrounding it. And so I did. And here we are today, going strong. So thank you, listeners. And thank you, Brain, for coming up with this idea. I don't know. So if you would like to stay up to date on all the podcast news, you can follow me on Twitter at Hooked on Science or on Facebook and Instagram at Hooked on Science Pod. I tried to put up posts with new episodes uh, when those are released and if any of the guest co-hosts have cool updates and any other relevant or interesting things that I find along the way. So go follow those accounts on whatever social media you use. So I have exciting news for anyone who is interested in learning about non-plant science topics. Our next four episodes, I believe, will be not in the plant sciences. I have gotten some interesting responses to my co-host nomination form, so I'm really excited to explore those topics with these new people and learn more about what they're doing. So we have that to look forward to. I don't want to give any spoilers away yet because some of them have not been confirmed, but I will have you know, come September, we will be having at least four episodes that are not related to plants. How exciting! There won't be an episode in two weeks if anyone has been in graduate school or knows someone in graduate school. We have to take uh, exams called comprehensive exams and I will be tied up in those over the next two weeks and wish me luck. So that means the next new episode will be out on I think it is September 9th. I will be posting a rebroadcast of an episode on August 26th. I haven't decided which one yet. I'll put a little disclaimer in there that it's not a new episode but you're free to listen, and I hope you do. Maybe you'll learn something new. Cody, welcome back. So what is the overall goal of your research? Thank you, Julia. 
the overall goal of my research is really to quantify how SCN, or soybean systematic for short now, is affecting these new cover crops that we're attempting to put into the corn and soybean rotation in Minnesota and, and throughout the Midwest. And what's important is that the camelina, which we have been talking about, is a non-host. So for the rest of this, we're going to be talking about pennycress. It's been shown in both our studies and previous studies to be an alternative host to soybean cyst nematode. So that's really the one we're focusing on in our research. And specifically, I'm looking at how soybean cyst nematode, the life cycle works on a winter annual plant. Almost all of the research in soybean cyst nematode has been done on soybean, which is a summer annual. We understand very well how long the life cycle takes, the different stages, you know, what moisture and temperature constraints affect reproduction in summer annual crops. But we don't know what occurs when a crop is planted in the fall and then how that life cycle is affected during the overwinter period. There's good evidence that there may be some die-off. And then what happens in the spring prior to the pennycress senescing or getting to harvestable maturity in which the syncytia or the feeding cell of the nematode is no longer viable. Um, so that's really the window we're looking at from fall planting through the winter and then to spring senescence and harvest of the pennycress plant. Okay, so before we even get to kind of that time period, how do you even measure if these soybean cyst nematodes are present in your soil? There's multiple ways to look at soybean cyst nematode in the soil. Probably one of the best uh, and most time proven techniques is to do soil sampling in highly replicated plots in which we are looking for the number of eggs per 100 cubic centimeters of soil. And the eggs are the, the first stage of the soybean cyst nematode life cycle. And that's how we get an estimate of what our population density is. Sure. So those eggs must be very, very small, I'm guessing. Do you look at them under a microscope or is there some kind of, you know, chemical test you can do to determine that? Yes. So we currently use visual aid or microscopes. So what we do is we collect the cysts, which are the overwintering bodies of the females. The females contain the eggs within their bodies, but the eggs are then extracted from those cysts. And then we use a variety of centrifuging processes to extract the different soil particle sizes from the cysts and the eggs. And then we visually then count the number of eggs per sample. Okay, interesting. So are there certain conditions that are more conducive to this nematode development than others? Yes, the nematodes do have both temperature, moisture, and proximity host constraints on their development. So they, they can sense how close they are to host roots, and that will cause them to hatch and develop. They can also sense the moisture and temperature of the soil. So those things all combine to affect the development, the egg hatch, the juvenile movement in the soybean cyst nematode. Oh, wow. So it sounds like they're very smart. <laughs> yes. Julie, I think it might be 
good to kind of quickly go over the life stages. Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. What does that cycle look like? So during about 25 degrees Celsius, adequate moisture with a host nearby, the cycle will take about 21 to 28 days to complete. That's from egg to mature female. And there's really different stages. The juveniles hatch in the soil. They then go into the root. There's four juvenile stages, which are take place as an endoparasite within the root. And then the female portion actually extrudes back out. And she, the, the female body, actually becomes the overwintering body. Uh, she contains eggs within her shell or, or her cyst. And that's what survives over winter. And actually, that can survive up to 10 years in the soil. So that's what's going to be present during the winter periods. During the spring periods, as the temperature increases, the reproduction rate also increases. Okay, so just to kind of maybe condense and just for clarification, so there's this female nematode that has this cyst on it, which contains the eggs, and it can just hang out in the soil until it senses there's a plant nearby that it can infect? Yes, exactly. It can, um, so the female body actually contains the cyst and so they're actually inside of of the female body but yes you're exactly correct that they can basically wait it out wait until a host comes back so often in a corn and soybean rotation in minnesota they're going to wait a full year until a, a soybeans come back into rotation then they will hatch and, and infect at that point you have these scns in the soil you have pennycress you have soybean you're looking to see if the pennycress is a viable host especially in these temperature differences and these timing differences um different than the soybean different than what we have a lot of information on what are you finding in your research? The story is a bit complex and the, the research is ongoing, but what we're finding is that in the fall, when the pennycress is planted in the fall until the winter period, there is no reproduction in the field on pennycress. Is that just because it's cold? We largely think it's because it's cold, yes, but there could be some kind of programming as well in the population for that diapause, you know. They're thinking we're going into cold, so we should not reproduce now. And that happens in, in large pest populations. They can understand those timing mechanisms. And they know there's probability of survival is low. Therefore, they stay within the cyst, um, the overwintering body. But in, then in the spring, so it depends on when the senescence date or the harvest maturity date is of the pennycress. The ones that have later harvest maturities, you know, end of June into almost July, those are the ones where we see reproduction in the spring. The earlier harvest maturities in early June to mid-June, we see very little reproduction in the spring. And so what we're trying to figure out is when can we plant this in the fall in order to avoid the pest cycle in the spring? Um, and the reason we don't, again, don't want that pest cycle in the spring is because we're increasing the pathogen load, then going into its main host, soybean, which is the one that, of course, we're most concerned about as as soybean, you know, a billion dollars in losses annually from soybean cyst nematode. Definitely. So are you finding that if you plant pennycrest earlier in the fall, you can get it off the ground earlier in the spring and reduce that risk? Or is there a different correlation between what you're finding? Yes. Yeah, so 
the exact mechanism is unclear, but yes, we are definitely seeing if you plant pennycress earlier in the fall, so August uh, 15th through September 15th, you're largely missing the pest life cycle in the spring. If you plant it later, uh, September 15th through October 15th, then those plants are, are seeing reproduction in the spring, which is not, you know, not a good thing. The exact mechanism is unclear. We have done overwintering studies, and it, right now it does not appear that any of the life stages other than the cyst are able to overwinter inside of the pennycrest roots. So that brings us kind of to a whole nother discussion, which is something that has been studied for a long time, which is called trap crops. And this is basically a crop that's planted in the fall, causes soybean cyst nematode to hatch out of the eggs, infect the roots of the plant, and then the soil temperature gets so low that the life stages die inside the roots. And that can result in reducing actually the pest population. So that's why we don't know the exact mechanism whether or not in the spring it's just about how much temp or how high the temperature is, or if it's actually reducing nematode populations because it's causing hatch in the fall and thereby reducing the overall populations when they're killed in the winter. That's kind of how we're thinking about how this research might be working. Sure. So yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of moving parts going on and there's a lot of questions still to be answered. So you also mentioned earlier about soybeans and resistant to the nematodes. Are you trying to find a new soybean that might go well into this corn pennycress soybean rotation that wasn't being used in just the corn soybean rotation? Yes. So there's two strategies here. Industry, along with our breeders at the University of Minnesota, as along with a, a multitude of agencies, are working on new SCN resistance in soybean, novel mechanisms to control SCN in soybean. So that's one strategy that we can use to help control the population. The other strategy is actually to find resistance in pennycress. And so we're looking at doing that. I'm actually working with Catherine again, shout out to her. Catherine Frowles has been a great mentor to me, but she has been working on the breeding aspect of how to find, screen for, and then hopefully intergress resistance in the future into our pennycrest models. So that is another strategy that we're taking, both the agronomic strategy, trying to avoid the pest life cycle, and then the breeding strategy of trying to get resistance into our pennycrest and our soybean lines. Very cool. You're covering the whole span of SCN problems, it sounds like. Yes, it's been a, it's been a great fun. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. So, Cody, as we start to wrap up our conversation today, do you have any takeaway points from anything we've talked about that you want to reiterate? Sure. Well, I think that Pennycrest and Camelina, both the oilseed crops, show a lot of promise. In the five years that I've been at the University of Minnesota, from my master's now to my PhD, we have just an excellent team um, working on all different aspects of these crops from, you know, the really the beginning, the breeding and the genetics, all the way through the end processing and the food development. And these crops really have a potential to both increase profitability for Minnesota growers and also increase ecosystem services for the rest of, of the state. We have shown, and we didn't talk about it, but I think you've talked about it in previous podcasts, that these cover crops can reduce nitrates, reduce erosion, reduce runoff, something that our current crops and the Minnesota landscape struggle to do well. And so that's one of the big takeaways is that these 
are very promising crops. The second thing is I just, you know, I, I hope that people realize from, from this and from our research that we're trying really to do due diligence in reducing the risk to the grower. When we put these crops out on the landscape, we want it to be relatively easy. Of course, it's still a new crop, but we want the information to be easily available to set growers up for success and processors or anyone down the line to set them up for success. So that's why we're doing this, this kind of discovery on pathogens and figuring out pathogen life cycles. As I said, you know, Camelina is a non-host, Pennycrest is a host, but we do think that we, we will be able to manage it in, in a variety of different ways in the future. The other thing is just, um, I love being on the front lines of, of research and doing research in new areas. And I think it's such a great uh, space for us to be in, Julia. And yeah, I'm just so glad you're doing this. Yeah, thanks, Cody. And thank you so much for joining me today. If people are interested in learning more about what you're doing, is there anywhere that they can go to do that? People are wanting to learn more, they can go to forevergreen.umn.edu and they can learn more about all the different crops, but also we put updates on there about our research. Please check it out. Perfect. Well, Cody, thank you again for coming on the show. It was really great to talk with you. Thank you so much, Julia. It was a pleasure. Welcome to the final fun fact of the episode. This fun fact comes from me. I decided I'd throw one in there. I have a lot of fun facts that are floating around my brain and sometimes I remember them. And this one seems, I don't know, relevant. It's the middle of the summer. There's lots of vegetables around. So, did you know that when you buy a bell pepper, whether it's red, orange, yellow, or green, it all comes from the same plant? The peppers change color based on how long it's been on the plant for. So it starts off green, turns yellow, turns orange, turns red. That color is really just an indicator of when the pepper was picked off the plant. And it can also be the reason why if you ever see that red peppers are more expensive than the other colors, it's on the plant longer, it is more at risk for being eaten by insects, the longer it is out there. So now you know. So if you have a fun fact or a topically relevant joke for me to read on an episode, email me at hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com, DM me, tweet at me, whatever, get in touch with me, and you may hear it on a future episode. Talk to you in four weeks. Oh my goodness. <laughs>